So what is the thirstiest you've ever been in your life when you just didn't have water and you needed it so bad or you ran out of water, maybe you're on a hike or doing something? I remember the thirstiest I've ever been in my life. I was, uh, I was with some family members who were ice skating on Round Pond in Nashua, New Hampshire, and we were skating all morning, and the, fa- the rest of the family left, and I stayed there with my cousin because we knew we could walk back to his place from this pond. And we started playing this little pond, this one-on-one pond hockey game that we invented with its own rules, and it was a very intense competition, and we just played and played and played until we were so exhausted, we couldn't even play anymore, and we realized in that moment that we had no water. We were so thirsty, because it was cold out, we didn't realize how hot we were getting with all this uh, activity, and neither of us were very good skaters, and it was a lot of work, and we, we, had, we had no water except this pond that's frozen, and we thought, perhaps we could get some nourishment from the pond. So we got on our hands and knees and just licked the pond. And it's kind of an urban setting there, if you're familiar with Round Pond. It's not out in the woods. It's uh, right off the main road. Uh, Kind of disgusting water. But we couldn't generate, with the heat of our mouths, enough melting to satisfy the thirst. And we realized we still have to walk all the way back my cousin's place. And when we got there, we, we made it. We got there, opened the faucet, and just stuck our heads underneath and started drinking from the faucet. But we were both were in each other's way. So we got a pitcher. We drank two pitchers full of water and then um, a jug of Kool-Aid, a pitcher of Kool-Aid. And the two pitchers of water and the jug of Kool-Aid satisfied that deep thirst. I don't know your story. Um, I don't know if I've ever really experienced thirst like some people in the world who genuinely run out of water. Um, there are, you know, 750 million people in this world lack uh, easy access to clean water. Uh, women and children primarily in many places have to walk great distances to get water, to collect the water and bring it home. Um, 500,000-ish children die every year in this world due to waterborne illnesses. So the the lack of water or the lack of clean water uh, is is a huge problem in many places. In Scripture, offering water to someone who's thirsty, including your enemy, offering water to somebody who is thirsty is just a basic part of a right human relationship. And it reflects our obedience to God and our faith in God, as Matthew 25 describes. Withholding water from someone who's thirsty is described as in in Scripture as foolish and wicked to do. Having to pay for water in Scripture is considered a mark of oppression and unjust treatment. To be thirsty and to need water is a very normal part of the human condition. And here, Jesus, hanging on the cross, he says, I am thirsty. Now, if we think about all the profound things that Jesus has said so far, 
He said, you know, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. He says to the thief next to him, you know, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. He says to his mother Mary and to the disciple John, woman, this is your son. Son, this is your mother. Caring for his mother. And then last week we looked at when Jesus is bearing the weight of the sin of the world on himself. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where as as scripture describes it, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become his righteousness. And he cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? And then Jesus says, I'm thirsty. What's going on here? What do we see here? And what does it mean to us? Let us pray. Father, as we look to the cross and as we've been reflecting for many weeks, our Lord Jesus hanging on the cross, these precious words that he spoke, Lord. We stand before you uh, needy. We admit our need for you always. And in this moment, that you might give us your wisdom, that you might show us who you are and what you've done for us, that we might even be changed, that our hearts might even be changed as we reflect on your word, because your Holy Spirit is active during this time, that you've brought us here for a purpose. And so we pray that you do your good purposes. Help us to receive it with hearts of faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So what do we see here, and what does it mean for us? First, what do we see? We see Jesus' humanity. Now, I tend not to focus on the brutality and the, suffer, the physical suffering of, of, that Jesus endured on the cross. I, in, you know, you see depictions of it. You see descriptions by uh, scientific kind of medical experts of what that would be like. You don't have to be a medical expert to know that death by crucifixion is a, a terrible and brutal and torturous way to die. And you can see depictions of it. I think of the 2004 movie, The Passion of the Christ, where you see the blood and the agony depicted in that way, and it's very, you, you feel it in a different way. And I saw that, I remember seeing that movie in the theater, and I remember I cried, and other people were crying when they saw it. But even then, I, as I was leaving the movie theater, I thought, that movie, if I didn't know anything about Jesus, I would know that he suffered greatly and that he died and even perhaps that he rose again is that kind of that last scene. But I don't know why. It doesn't, the movie doesn't explain why. It just shows the, the brutality without a lot of explanation there. Um, I tend, in my understanding of Jesus on the cross, to focus on the spiritual reality of what was happening. This cosmic transaction of our sinfulness for his righteousness and, and the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus. And what we talked about last week, where he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's where I tend to focus. But that does not mean that the physical suffering of Jesus is unimportant. In fact, it's crucially important. You hear Jesus struggling to even breathe. At this point in a crucifixion, in order to even take a breath, the victim, and in this case Jesus, would have to somehow pull his body up enough to be able to get enough breath in to breathe pushing against the nails, or even the Romans would sometimes even put a, a, a little platform on the cross 
to be able to push the feet against so that the victim would prolong their life in their agony because the will to live and to breathe was greater than even the agony. And so here's Jesus struggling to breathe. The pain of his wounds, the aching of his, his bones and body, his mouth is parched. He's exhausted and he says, I am thirsty. Here we see the humanity of Jesus, and we can never forget or ignore the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus got hungry, that Jesus got thirsty, Jesus ate and he slept just like us, that he was a baby and a child and he went through puberty and was a teenager and would experience the normal feelings of being a human and the urges and indeed even the temptations. Scripture says that Jesus experienced temptation without sin, but he experienced all that it meant to be human. The Bible tells us Jesus got tired. He fell asleep in a boat. That Jesus would sweat. But, but did Jesus get sick? Did he get the common cold? Did Jesus sneeze? You know, and I ask that question because I would say, of course Jesus would sneeze. It's a normal part of being a human in a dusty part of the world, that Jesus would sneeze. Did Jesus get a pulled muscle? Did he have a headache? Did, did Jesus truly experience all that it means to be a human with human flesh? And the answer is yes. Now, in this moment, we it's not just Jesus' humanity. There's a there's a lot of spiritual, spiritual reality that's also happening behind the scenes when Jesus says, I thirst. I mean, right here in the text, it says, um, in order to fulfill Scripture, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And he was given a drink. It doesn't say which Scripture Jesus was fulfilling, but we're to understand, Psalm 69 says, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. So Jesus had thirst and he was given this wine vinegar to drink, and that fulfills this scripture, which makes his humanity even more amazing because Jesus knew the prophecy about himself, what he was to endure. Jesus would know prophecies like Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Jesus knew he was the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, which says, He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with transgressors. transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He knew that he was to pour out his life unto death. And he told his followers, this is what's going to happen to me. And they didn't want to hear it. But he did all these things knowing what was to happen. And he did it anyway. And he hangs on the cross and he says, I thirst. And he's given this wine vinegar. So what, what is, there's a jar there. Why is there a jar at the cross? And why is he begin, given this drink? Now, not to confuse this, in the Gospel of Matthew, in the Gospel of Mark, they describe that Jesus was offered a drink before he, right before he was crucified. So somebody who was trying to help him, perhaps, offered him what's called wine mixed with myrrh. So this, was, this would have been perhaps a sedative or something to intoxicate and dull the pain, Jesus refused that drink. Instead, he chose to experience, to not be sedated, 
but to experience all of the agony of the cross, to drink, figuratively, the cup of suffering that the Father had before him. Here, he's being offered wine vinegar, which is essentially wine that's turned. It's, 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 uh, the, the alcohol is probably gone from the wine at this point. It's soured, essentially turns to vinegar. And it would, in Jesus' day, would be mixed, that type of a sour, vinegary, spoiled wine would be mixed with water. It actually makes, it purifies the water. So if water had contaminants, it, would, it was safer to drink. It was thought to be more hydrating. The water may have been foul-smelling, and the vinegary kind of covers the foul water smell. So soldiers were known to drink this kind of wine vinegar as a thirst quencher. It's your first century Gatorade, perhaps. And so it's the thirst quencher. And of course, these soldiers who are working the scene and have crucified Jesus, would, it w- wouldn't be unusual that there would be a jar of this there. Jesus thirst, and he's given uh, via a sponge lifted to him on the cross this drink. Not only would it not intoxicate or sedate him, it's going to prolong his life. It's going to prolong his pain. And just imagine the determination of this man to complete this task. And perhaps, and I'm speculating a little bit, but does Jesus ask for this drink so that he can speak the next words which he's about to speak and we will reflect on over the next two weeks? If he's not, if he was so dry that he needed this to be able to speak out his last cries from the cross so that we can hear them, so that it could be heard then and that we can hear it today. This is Jesus, human, with just a deep thirst. Jesus' humanity is a very important belief that we have. In the early church, when when Christianity and faith in Jesus was starting to spread, one of the first false teachings about Jesus was called docetism, or the belief that Jesus was not human, that Jesus only appeared to be human. Because people couldn't comprehend that God, that, that Jesus could be both fully God and fully human. And that is a profound thought. And it's hard to understand, but there were those who denied it. No, God would never take human flesh because human flesh is too lowly or it's too, um, it's lesser than spiritual reality and God would never do that. And the early Christians had to teach against that. They said, watch out for that kind of teaching. First John, so in the epistles of John, he's specifically speaking to this. First John chapter 4, take a look at this verse. It says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus in that sense is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now even in the world. He said, there is... This belief that Jesus didn't come in the flesh fully human is anti-Jesus. It's anti-Christ. You need to stay away from it. In the letter 2 John, verse 7, it says, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. He said, you, you, you have to stay away from this bad teaching because if you don't believe Jesus was fully human, then then." You, it undermines his good news. It means that Jesus didn't die in your place, and it means that you're still lost in your sin. Jesus had to be fully man to represent mankind on the cross. 
as a substitute, as a representative. For example, if, I, if we were to say, let's have a competition, and I'm gonna, we're going to do a bicycle race, because I know some of you like to bicycle race. I see a couple of you over there. And I'm going to challenge you as the Free Church, the, the free church Cup for the, the best bicyclist at Free Church, which is me. <laughs> and, and some of you see me out on the road. You know this is true. I represent my, you know, there's five or six parishes of our church and of geographic parishes, and I'm going to represent the South Parish, and you can represent your parish, and we're going to race. So we show up on the day of the race, and you're all on your bicycles, and I show up on a Harley. And we're all at the starting line, and I throttle it. And I look at you, and you say, that's not fair. So why not? You say, this is a bicycle race for the Free Church Cup. You can't. You can't represent your parish on a motorcycle when we're all on bicycles. Right? It's ridiculous. For Jesus to represent humanity, he had to be fully human on that cross to be able to stand in our place. Now, he also had to be fully God so that he could absorb the cost of the penalty to be perfect and holy, to, you know, to, for God himself to stand in our place, but fully human and fully God, they're both absolutely necessary. And if you deny his humanity, then you deny his sacrifice for you. That's why it's so important. And here on the cross, we see Jesus, fully human, dying, saying, I thirst. What does that mean for us? Three things. One is that Jesus truly can be your substitute um, Galatians 4 describes it like this. When the time had fully come, God sent his son Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons, sons and daughters, that were children of God. What that means is we were all living under God's law. It only applies to humans. No animal, no angelic, heavenly being. You know, we live under God's law. But according to God's law, we all sin. We all violate God's law. We're all guilty. So it would take a perfect human who could perfectly live out the law, perfectly fulfill the law, to be able to stand in our place. And that's exactly what Jesus did. To redeem us from that, the, the guilt and the condemnation. Here's the beautiful thing. In Jesus, there's no more guilt. There's no more condemnation. You are declared right before God, right relationship with God. You're accepted as his child. You're a full heir of the family estate. It is all of the blessings of God are for you now. No guilt. The sad thing is that there's so many people, and the saddest is people who had a, a very strict religious upbringing and some Christian traditions, and all they experienced was guilt and you're not following the religious rules and all the religious pressure, and they just feel condemned and guilty all the time. They say, no, central to our faith is there is no guilt and condemnation, that you can be fully forgiven and free because Jesus took it. He was truly your substitute, and you can be free. The second thing this means for us is that Jesus understands your physical pain. How old were we when 
we started to gather with our friends and family, and all, the first thing we talk about is our physical ailments and what's aching and what upcoming procedure and what medications are you on. I was with my family last night. I was with, my cousin was in from out of town. So these are all, my cousins are all, we're all about the same age. We all went to high school together. We all played sports together. And right away, hey, how you doing? Both my knees are shot. Remember the one, the football injury, and now I can't walk. And, and this one is struggling with weight. And they were making fun of the other one because he's losing his hair. And it's just one thing after another. We, were at, we met up at one of these indoor, uh, indoor driving range, golf simulator, very fun. But next to it, there was uh, some karaoke. So another family member decides he wants to sing karaoke. Can't read the words without his glasses. Totally embarrasses himself by not singing. It's just, it was just, my family was a complete disaster. And it's, not, it's your family too. It's not just the Paul boys. We all feel the, the, the physical ill. It's physical illness and failure of our bodies is just so human. That here, Here's my prediction. And I, I'm, I know I'm right. You, if you're in a small group and you gather as a small group and you say, does anybody have any prayer requests? My prediction is this. Most of the prayer requests, more than half, and I would guess even 75% or more, are prayer requests for people who are sick or injured or facing a diagnosis or going to surgery, upcoming thing. Am I right? So my, my small group, that's, it. that's how ours go too. And I'm not breaking confidence because that's every small group. I used to get frustrated about that. To say, oh, come on, as followers of Jesus, there's so many things we could be praying for in our world. Why do we spend all of our time just praying for sick people? And that used to frustrate me. It doesn't frustrate me anymore. I've come to embrace that this is very much human condition, that we get sick, that our bodies deteriorate, and that we need to pray to the Lord who understands human suffering, physical pain, and even human death, because he's been through it. So of course we pray for the sick and those who are struggling and injured. And if you're young people here, you're, you have it too. Everybody feels some, that whether it's chronic pain or digestive stuff or just being tired, the stress and, the stress and anxiety levels of young people and burnout rate, very high, fatigue, Weakness, all these things. You don't have to be old to experience these kind of pains. You know, maybe it is just aches and joints and arthritis and that kind of thing, but maybe it is a, more of a life-threatening thing, or maybe it's a terminal diagnosis. Hebrews chapter 4 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And when we're sick and the people we love are sick and their life is threatened in one way or another, they, there is a temptation there to turn from God or to think that God has somehow left us. And we say, no, no, no. He knows. He understands. And we call out to the one who knows. So when you feel that pain, remember the one who suffered for you. So, why, what does this mean for us? One, we have a, Jesus truly can be your substitute because he's human. 
Secondly, he can truly understand your physical condition because he was truly human. And lastly, this is, what this means for us is that we now have a sustaining motivation to live life and to fight sin. Here, there's a Galatians 5.24 verse. I want to skip to that if you have it. It says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That is, what happened to Jesus, the crucifixion, the physical violence done to Jesus' body, is an image of what we need to do to the part of us that's broken and sinful. That him being crushed on the cross is how we need to crush our sinful nature. You know, the, you know, being a human, we have these desires and temptations. Our desires aren't always good. They're often inclined towards sin. And we look at the cross and we see how Jesus' body was crushed. We say, you know what? All that sinful part in me, let it die. Galatians 2.20 says it like this. I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in my body... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My life in this, my human body, it's, it's, it's alive in Jesus. It's, 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 everything in there has just been crushed and crucified and nailed to a cross, and now I have a new life in Jesus. So his physical suffering becomes that example for us or that image, and it empowers us. Um, I, I don't have this one on the screen, but Hebrews chapter 12 describes it like this. It says, consider Jesus, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that so, so you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding of your blood. The teaching there is, look, whatever temptation you have in your life, whatever sin you wrestle with, you haven't died yet. It hasn't killed you yet. It could, but you're still alive. You haven't shed your blood and died. So as you fight sin in your life, Remember the one who gave himself for you, who did resist to the point of giving his body and blood for us. You know, so, or as 1 Corinthians 10 teaches, you know, no temptation is going to come at you except human temptation. And when you are tempted, God will always provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. You're not just some victim in this world, in your broken, you know, human nature. No. You're, you're going to fight, and you're going to stand up under God's provision. And that's, when we see the humanity of Jesus, we remember that, and we're motivated by it. He takes on the human death so we can have eternal life. He gets the bitter wine so that we can get the living water poured as we live, the, this out, as we live out this life in our bodies. Let us pray. Father, you're good. As we consider the humanity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it was we think of your great sacrifice for us. Lord, I pray especially now as we think about these things for those here and, and for those who listening, because I know some people, because of their physical state right now, cannot be in this room. And I, I pray for them that they would just know that you are with them, that you understand truly the human condition. And Lord, that would motivate us to live our lives in this broken and deteriorating body for your glory. 
Empower us to do so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.